James has been talking to persecuted Christians about trials, and so the title of our message tonight is The Enduring Christian, The Enduring Christian. Last week, we started with verse 2, and James 1, 2 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And uh, at that point in time, I kind of wanted to say, okay, well, amen, let's go home. That seemed to make no sense. And then he continued talking about that in verse 3 and 4. And then we looked at verses 5 to 8, where the Lord said, listen, if you're in your trials, you're going to need wisdom, and you're not going to need the wisdom that just comes to you naturally or comes from the world, but I'm going to give you that wisdom. You just need to ask me for it, and I will abundantly supply it to you. And I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to be like, why are you bothering me? I am going to give that wisdom to you. What comes next in verses 9 through 11 seems a little bit out of place unless we step back and we think about it very carefully. Uh, We said last week that most of the audience that James is writing to were, he said in verse 1, were scattered believers, uh, people who presumably were driven out of their homeland, very poor Jewish Christians, Not necessarily all were, as we're going to see tonight, but a lot of the people fell into that category. And it appears, though, that some were rich, and there's a a debate among Bible scholars. I mean, you can do what I do and geek out for two hours and read about it and and you know, be like, oh, this is, this is a tough one here. I'll, uh, I'll let you know. If you want to put a gun to my head in a little while, I'll let you do that, and I'll let you know which side I come down on. But that's just this week. I might, I might be different next week. And, um, and it comes down to this. The rich people that he's talking to, are they Christian rich people, or are they unbelieving rich people? And James could be saying, for a rich follower of Jesus that it's important that we're careful. And now we like to think in the United States, like, well, we're not rich. You know, you know Warren Buffett's rich, and you know, Jeff Bezos is rich, and you know, Bill Gates is rich. But those people in our congregation who are from other countries always look at us and they're like, you're all rich, because in the United States we're very, very uh, blessed here. But for a rich follower of Jesus... Uh, James is going to warn us to be very, very careful of the danger to your faith that riches can pose. If he's talking to rich unbelievers, then he's probably more or less saying, in the end, realize this, life is going to go very quickly, and in the end, your money will be worth nothing. Verse 9, I want to read to you twice. He says this, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. So a little slower, let the lowly brother, another version says, those of you in humble circumstances, glory, other versions, most versions say boast, let you who are lowly or in humble circumstances boast in your exaltation. Another version says, take pride in your high position. Now you're like, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. How can somebody who's lowly or humble boast in their exaltation or in their high position? Let's go on to verse 10 and 11, which we'll come back to in a bit. Uh, But the rich, now remember, he said in verse 9, let the lowly brother, brother would mean Christian, the argument or the debate comes in, but the rich, he doesn't say brother, so did he purposely leave that out or is it implied? But the rich in his humiliation, so rich people usually are more exalted, but he says rich people should rejoice in their humiliation because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower fails, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man, another version says, in the same way, the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. So in his activities, in his business, all that he does will soon fade away. Now, we could tonight make a lot of rich and poor comparisons. And one thing you'll hear from a lot of poor people is they'll hear stories about rich people and all the problems that they have. And they'll say, well, I'd love to have those problems too. And I'd love to at least see what what that's like. 
But when it really comes down to it, there's a few things in life that completely level the playing field. And one of them is trials. When, when, when people go through trials, when they go through pain, and when they go through suffering, it's basically this. Trials don't care how much money you have. Trials don't care how much money you don't have. You know, pain, grief, all of those kind of things, money does not really uh, come into question. Now, verse 10 talks about people with money, but when he says, verse 9, let the lowly brother glory or boast in his exaltation, he could be talking specifically to people and, that are poor and saying this to them. Uh, you know, you should be excited because you are a follower of Jesus, even though you seem to be nothing in the eyes of the world. You know, we live in a society that puts big emphasis on, on how much money you have. And, and for some people who feel like they don't have any money, they feel like they mean nothing in the eyes of the world. Um, but this is a falsehood. In Old Testament times and Jesus' day and even today, as we just said, people wrongly teach that wealth equals God's pleasure. Now, it may, but often it does not. We all know plenty of rich people, or we know of plenty of rich people. And I, was, I saw this article, I was sitting somewhere, I saw this article about Larry Ellison, the, the founder of Oracle. And, and he's got this new girlfriend. I guess Larry Ellison's about 70-something, and she looks like she's like 18. And, and so it said something like, uh, you know, Larry's already failed four times. We doubt he's going to take a plunge the fifth time. So, you know... It, you know, wealth does not equal God's pleasure, certainly in, in a case like that. Uh, some have also wrongly taught that poverty is more godly. Now, if poverty was more godly, why in the world does God tell us to help the poor? He would say, don't help the poor, they're godly. It's good, this is good for them. So, so that doesn't make sense either. I think what the Lord wants us to see is the promise of high honor, which most of us won't experience till the life to come, of people who don't have extreme wealth, but even for people who don't have wealth, that they would be humble in this life, realizing that true exaltation, true you know, success will be achieved in the next life. And by having a proper view of money, this life, and the next life, that will help bring clarity to this life. I mean, there's plenty of people that have money, but it's probably more accurate to say that money has them. That they just can't let go of it. Sometimes wealthiest people are some of the stingiest people, and most people who are even followers of Jesus find as their income goes up, a lot of them, their percentage of giving, in fact, goes down. And I think it's easy for us to miss something, that when we read the Bible, we tend to read it for ourselves. We tend to not really think about the rest of the world. And sometimes we read the Bible and we don't even think about God too much. But much of the Bible is written to help us see the world through God's eyes. And, and God wants us to see that, listen, you're, you're, you're poor, but you're a follower of Jesus. That is a high honor. You're, you're rich. Humble yourself, because the high honor is not in your wealth. The high honor is in your being a child of God. Now, in verse 9, the word to describe poor is lowly or humble. They're to glory, to boast in their exaltation or high position. And, and so somebody would read that. You know, sometimes people read verses and they go, I see, this is why I don't read the Bible. I just don't understand any of this. What in the world is he talking about? He's saying that when you turn to God and put your trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus used the terminology repent and believe, repent, turn, believe, trust in God, not in, in yourself, that when you do that, when I did that, in heaven's eyes, we are lifted up from whatever position we're in, whatever position we're in. Do you think that 
Heaven thinks that anybody here on earth is really rich. I mean, the streets are paved with gold, we're told. So if, if somebody, somebody could bring all of their gold to heaven, they just, just, they, they just managed somehow to get it there. You know, they bribed some guy at the gate, right? And they said they, they brought it all in, and they're like, here I am with my gold. Somebody would go, oh, the paver's here, right? The guy who's going to lay down the next road is here. And so, and so nobody in heaven thinks that we're, we're really rich here on earth, but when you put your trust in Jesus, you are lifted up to a high position, in Christ, a position of honor, of worth. Let me say this to you. So for some of you, I think this might be very, very helpful. You matter. In God's eyes, not that you didn't matter before, but you matter in a very different way now because when you trust in Jesus, you become his child. As far as heaven's concerned, earth says, oh, that person, they don't really matter. They don't really matter. Heaven says, no, that, that person matters big time. Now, over the centuries, Bible scholars have called this the great reversal. When God is going to take how the world has misunderstood followers of Jesus and reverse things, flip them right side up, not upside down, and set things right in the next life. But to fail to see this, to try and live with, we talked about last time, one foot in the world and one foot in heaven will make someone into an unstable, double-minded person. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah put it this way, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. He said, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory or, or boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory, again, most versions say boast in his might, nor let the rich man glory or boast in his riches, but let him who glories, glory in this, let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord." So here it's very interesting. The Lord says, listen, I'm not saying that all boasting is bad. What I'm saying is what you boast in or specifically who you boast in, that's what really, is ma that's what really matters. So we are to boast in the Lord. We are to boast in what the Lord has done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. So through what Jeremiah said in the Old Testament he said that we can understand and know the Lord. We can have the forgiveness of sins and we can have eternal life. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, after Jesus has ascended into heaven, wrote this. Interesting, he was talking to people who had money and he was drawing attention to them that you have money, but you need to follow the example of another group of people. He's telling the Corinthians, you need to be more like the Macedonians. They don't have money but they're very, very generous. And you have money and you're not. Why? Because they fail to understand this important principle, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. He was rich. He lived in heaven. He came to earth. He became poor. Why? That you, through his poverty, might become rich through Jesus becoming poor, living on earth, living a perfect life in your place, die in my place, dying a sinner's death on the cross in your place and in my place and rising from the dead, that though we are comparatively poor compared to heaven, we might become rich. We are the heaven-bound people of God. There's another type of poverty that probably James is talking about here, that some of you know the experience of, and that is those who suffer for their decision to follow Jesus. They become what we might call religious outcasts. I mean, some of you, you come from a family and they raised you in, with no faith or in one faith, and now you've changed it or you've kind of come to a little different place in your thinking about Jesus, and you have to endure things like, well, you know, you 
you're saying the faith we raised you in was wrong or, or look at what happened to that Christian or, or that person says they're a Christian. And so you will have to deal with that. And what had happened in James's day, presumably the people they are writing to, had left the bad form of Judaism that Jesus was so much against that had, had become these additional rules and regulations and, and the phony hypocrisy of the religious leaders. And, and even leaving that, even you could talk to a lot of people and they would say, my family says that their religion is hypocritical, it's fake, it's no good. And when I left, boy, did I catch a lot of heat. I still caught a lot of heat. They paid a very big price. Some of you have heard this expression, you know, I liked you better when you were on drugs than you as a follower of Jesus. You've actually heard that. And, and so you've paid a big price with family and friends, and, and these people paid a big price with the, with the religious leaders at the temple and at the local synagogues. And, and James wants us all to see, and he'll really tell us more about this in verse 12, that heaven honors those who are enduring persecution for Christ's sake. Heaven honors those that are enduring in the faith, even in this life, they're having trouble making ends meet, or it seems like the rich are getting away with murder, and they are not. In Acts chapter 5, verses 40 through 42, uh, Gamaliel, who was a mentor of the Apostle Paul before he was converted, uh, said, he actually said that they have writings of him saying he couldn't keep the Apostle Paul in books, and if you know much about Paul's writing, his brilliance shows. And he was speaking at a, at a meeting of religious leaders, and they were discussing what they were to do with this new movement. It's the beginning of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5. It's the beginning of the church, really. And so they're trying to figure out what are we going to do with these characters? I mean, people are starting to follow them in droves. And, 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 and Gamaliel was very wise, and, and he said to them, if this movement is from God, you're just not going to be able to stop it. So you think, well, maybe, maybe the religious leaders would be willing to consider is this movement from God. And we read in verse 40, it says, and they agreed with him. So, so far, so good. And when they called for the apostles and beaten them, so, so much for, so much for thinking maybe these guys have something worth listening to, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council. Never to speak of Jesus again, right? No, that's not how it reads in my version either. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame. Some versions say dishonor and disgrace for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They had no intention to stop. They were willing to put up with the persecution, with the difficulty, with the struggling, with the, with the struggle, with people thinking they were nothing to follow Jesus, these poor fishermen. I love the, when it says in the previous chapter, when they had been speaking with these, these, here you have these poor fishermen, two of them, and they're speaking with the religious leaders, especially Peter, and, and, and they're speaking with the, these intellectuals of the society, and they're just, they're, the intellectual religious leaders are coming at them, and they just can't get the better of them. And they said, surely these guys have been with Jesus, man. They know his tricks. They know his stuff. They know how he spoke to us. And the same thing, they couldn't get the Galilean carpenter to, to, to do anything other than to send them home with their tail between their legs. So let's look at verse uh, 10 and 11 again. But the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. Now, a lot of times in the Bible, in the Word of God, the, the, the term rich is used for uh, wickedness or wicked people. But in that context, it usually has to deal with oppression. When rich people were oppressing the poor, they're pictured as being, as being wicked. That's not what we really have here. And this is an important thing really to remember as we read our Bibles, because there's lots of talk about the poor. 
And, and sometimes it's the spiritually poor, sometimes it's the physically poor, sometimes it's not entirely clear. Could mean one or the other, it could mean both. But for the most part, uh, there was no middle class in the ancient world. Uh, you have of what you've probably heard a lot about way exists in India. There's a lot of very wealthy people and there's just tons and tons of poor people. And so, um, so, but it also is true that you have plenty of rich people in the Bible that who were not wicked. Even in Jesus's day, we think of Zacchaeus. He was a rich guy and he was doing stuff he wasn't supposed to, but then he was going to give you know, half of his money away. We think of Joseph of Arimathea who was willing to provide the tomb for Jesus. So what is clear here that, that James is talking about is that the rich are not to boast in their wealth. That, that is not what they're to boast in because that is going to fade away. They are to boast in, as Jeremiah said, that they know the Lord. They are to boast in their identity in Christ. I would even say that James is implying here, you are to boast with the people of God that you are part of the people of God. In the eyes of the world, even if you are rich and you are going to start hanging out with followers of Jesus, that will produce humiliation. People are like, what are you doing with those ridiculous Jesus people? Come on, man. What are you doing? You know, I remember for years, and I'm not putting any judgment on people who, who have houses down the shore, but we, you know, I owned a business for many years, and it was doing very, very well, and all of my friends kept saying to me, why in the world, and before I was a Christian, I had a, had a rented a beach house, but they, my friends would say, why in the world, with as successful as your business is doing, don't you have a beach house? And I would say, for me and my family, we just wanted to be part of a local church, and so I would have, you know, either been missing church or missing, you know, missing my beach house, which why have a beach house if you don't go to it? Now, Again, I'm not judging people. Perhaps that was part of God instilling in my heart a call that I did not know existed at the time for a love for the local church. So he, we have to be you know, careful to make sure that we are listening to the Lord. You see, the temptation for rich people to be pulled from their faith is tremendous. It's tremendous. Money produces pride in people, and it also produces a whole array of excuses because people who are rich can kind of do whatever they want and, 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 and buy whatever they want. And so rich Christians have to be very, very careful. You see, in the ancient world, remember a lot of the people were poor, and we have the same thing today. In, in the inner cities where people tend to have as, not as much money as the people in the suburbs and, and in other countries where there's a lot of poor people, it's very common and was common in New Testament times for people to build their life around the church. While people with money, and again, I would consider where we live to be predominantly people with money, they often try to fit church in. So you have a model of people building their life around the church and then going out into the marketplace and telling people about Jesus. And then, but you also have rich people who are trying to fit church in. And it's very interesting. And this is one of the worries that we're in right now. Uh, studies show that the more often you are in church, the more often you will read your Bible and pray. The more often you are in church, the more, off, the more often you will have Christian friends that you are in contact with. The more often you are in church, the more uh, prone you are to following Jesus and not rationalizing certain temptations that we'll be talking about in a bit. And, and James warns the rich, it's all going to fade away. Now you say, well, is he talking to believing people or unbelieving people? Is he, what's going to fade away, riches or life? Yes, yes. 
and when both riches and life fade away, here's an important soul-searching question. What will be left? What will be left? The, the word picture is excellent, like the scorching heat of the sun causes a flower to fade. All of us will fade away too. And how important to think about what will come next. Now, I've seen this in churches before, more probably before I was in Calvary Chapel, but, but not to mean that it couldn't happen in Calvary Chapel, but I've seen this before, that, that people with money tend to think that they know better how to shepherd the hearts of God's people. And you say, well, how does that happen? That comes from people thinking because they are successful in one area that they can be successful in another area. Because they know what to do in one situation, they think they know what to do in other situations. So that's a common question some of you have asked me. Some people have said to me, well, what's the difference between the, the, you know, the business world and, and the church world? On the one hand, a lot of it centers around people. So you've got to learn how to deal with people, and there's different ways. I'd say there's different ways you deal with people in the, in the business world than you do in the church world. And so that creates a, creates a big thing. You know, Somebody leaves your job, and you're like, oh, they left. And somebody leaves your church, and like, oh, my gosh, they left. All right, so it, it, it's definitely very different uh, in, in that. And, and it's different in, in a lot of other ways, too. Again, the way you, you approach people. What would be the same? Well, I mean, I would say there's certain organizational principles that are the same. I mean, we have people who volunteer, so we have a schedule, just like we had a schedule of, you know, who would do what at work. And, and, and then there's just certain things that make the job go faster if, you, you know, if you're doing you know, stuff around the church. It helps to have a list to do things. So if you don't finish the list, you can leave it for someone else and they know where to pick up. They don't have to start from the beginning. So there's a few things that overlap, but there's a lot of things that, that don't overlap uh, at all. A lot of times people who are successful and rich have an, have an exalted view of their own self-importance. And they see other people as failures and they refuse to see God's perspective. Uh, but perhaps worst of all is I've noticed for, in a lot of rich people that coming to church and Christianity for them has become a, a way of further self-improvement. Now, I'm not saying that we all are not going to be improved through following Jesus. I'm not saying that, but that seems to be their own main goal, actually, so they can build a bigger and better business instead of seeing that they need to follow a Savior who is to be trusted. So anyway, if you put a gun to my head, some of you may have it there already, and, and you ask, is the man of verse 10 a believer or an unbeliever? I lead toward, lean towards he is a believer. It, because it seems to me that James is teaching us all the most important identity we have, once again, in this life and the next. The only identity that will be worth anything in the next life is our identity in the Lord Jesus. Uh, both poor and rich need to remember this in case they think too little of themselves or in case they think too much of themselves. So in that sense, both being poor and being rich for a Christian is a test of faith, is a test of identity. Will you see yourself in the way the world sees you, or will you see yourself in the way the Lord sees you? In other words, God wants us to use his standards to view ourselves, not the world's. A huge concept for all of us to remember, to understand, remember, and embrace. Verse 12 we return to the topic in verse 12 of trials in general, and this is what's very important, how God blesses those who endure. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, 
What does that mean, approved? Well, one version says when he has stood the test. Another version says when he has passed the test. We might say when he has stood firm. So blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has stood firm, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. That's who the, who, who the crown of life is promised to. Now, this is a huge promise. And here, once again, we see that the, the Bible writers were Bible readers. Blessed is the man is both Old Testament language and sermon, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount language. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. Now, trials and temptations. Some people think that they're the same thing. On that one, I would not be in their camp. I think that trials and temptation are different things. We'll see that as we go along. But I think both of them are things that can attack our faith and our faithfulness. Both of them are things that can attack our heart and our soul. Now, the word blessed is often translated in the word happy. But I think the way they thought of happy in terms of happy in the overall spiritual sense is very different than the way we think of the word happy. So, because let's be honest, when we say, you know, if, if we said happy is the man who endures temptation, let's be honest, there's, there's a lot of situations that don't make us happy, aren't there? And so let's be careful of that. I think what James means here is, is that, that there is a uniquely Christian blessedness that comes with remaining faithful to God. So we might look at it and say, you know, how uniquely blessed is the man who endures temptation for the long haul. That there's a tremendous blessing that comes along with that. And so can we experience that blessing here and now? Absolutely yes. And I think we all know what it's like. It's, it's a blessing to do the right thing, isn't it? Even, even young people know that. And, and to stand firm, how many times people have woken up the next day and they're like, oh, I'm so glad I did that. I'm so glad I didn't give into that. But the picture of a crown here is, is more uh, not necessarily of a king, I don't think, but it's an athlete's reward after winning a long, uh, it's his reward and award for after a long and difficult race. And that's what the Christian life is. We often say that the Christian life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And it's important. That's why we're, he uses the word enduring. It's not like you know you, you run to the 50-yard the, the dash or the 100-yard dash or something like that, and, and that's it. Well, I did it. I endured. I'm done. No, this is a lifelong way to live. And when he talks about the crown of life, I don't know about you, but to me, that term has an eternal ring to it. It seems like it is a reward for a life well-lived as a servant of the Lord. And it comes with an interesting promise. It's a promise reward for those who love the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? The simple love of the Lord will get you this, this crown of life. So, so what is the crown of life? Nobody knows. <laughs> you could have a lot of theories, but this is one of those things where I know I like to geek out for an hour and read all these different theories, but when I come across things like this, I often think, I don't want to know. I love surprises. You know, some people like surprises, some people don't like surprises. I love surprises. My wife, Pam, will always say to me, I have a surprise for you. And I go, oh, great. She goes, do you want to know what it is? I go, no, then it won't be a surprise. <laughs> and it's interesting about Pam is, is when there's movies about Jesus, she doesn't really like to watch them because she says, I don't want any pictures in my mind. I just want it all to be fresh and wonderful when I get there. You know, I think when we talk about not knowing or, or getting surprises, I think it also reminds us that we don't just live the Christian life for a belief system. I think that's what a lot of people think about us. I think they think, well, you have your beliefs, or you believe this, or you believe that. 
And sometimes you hear some of the stuff that people say you believe, and you're like, I don't believe that, <laughs> because they heard it from some wackadoo person who just some Christian belief thing popped into their mind. Um, so we don't just live for a belief system. That doesn't mean we don't have one. We, we do have one, but we live for a person. We, we live to love the Lord. That's why we live. Now, he's also our heavenly father. So one thing that I like about this concept of the crown of life, uh, now, just picture your heavenly father or any loving father. Let's picture a loving father with, with just tons of kids, hundreds, thousands, millions of kids, and it's Christmas morning. Do you picture that there's only one present under the tree and it's only for one of those kids? No, I don't, I don't picture that at all. I picture that the, there's, there's just presents everywhere, and they go, you know, Father, who are the presents for? And he goes, it's for those who love me. It's for those who love me. So the soul-searching question here in this then is, if love for God is not a big part of our lives, can we really say that we're Christian? I mean, really? That's really serious. I mean, you ask people, they say, oh, I'm Christian. Like, well, do you love God? Well, God loves me. I love God. But, but, but the crown of life, then, is not for you. It's not for the, because it's for those who love the Lord. You see, loving and serving God, and here, don't, don't get this backwards. We serve God because we love God. And loving and serving God should be a big part of a life of a true follower of Jesus. It's important to understand this. Yes, knowing God's love for you will really, really help you. It will, it will empower you for this life. It will help you to endure but James is not saying that here. You know, this is, there's a lot of stuff that's missing here from James. It's going to come later in James. But notice, we're, we're talking about uh, temptation in a minute. James isn't going to go, well, just pray about it like we tell people. He doesn't say that at all. It's important that we understand that, yes, there is God's love for us, but let's flip the coin over. And the other side of the coin is that our deep love for God is what enables us to endure in faith. I think a lot of us think that it's just our determined performance. No, it, it, it's, it's our deep love for God. Not only love, and this always rubs people the wrong, a lot of people the wrong way, but also the Lord's eternal rewards. A lot of people, like they're like, well, I just do this because I love God. I don't need a reward for it. God says, well, I'm going to give you one. I'm going to give you one. And the more faithful you are, the more you can expect. And, and actually, you get the impression whenever the, the New Testament talks about rewards, it's in a fashion that God is saying, those rewards, those eternal rewards are going to actually help you keep your eye on the prize. Now, you might say, is that selfish? It actually can be. I mean, if you're only doing this like, I'm only serving the Lord because I want the rewards. Forget about it, as we say here in New Jersey. That's not, that, that, that's not, that's not going to be it. But, but when, you, when you view serving God as something you share with the Lord that you love, you understand why he wants to share what he has with you in this mutual sharing of love. This is, strangely enough, also how we can rejoice in trials. Even the ones that seem to go on forever. I mean, some of you are in trials that you have been in for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, maybe longer. And, and they just don't seem to go away. And yet somehow, unexplainably, your love for God is actually growing. The more you hear about Him, the more you love Him. That's why it's so important to, to hear God's Word. You see, 
for us, typically, as Americans, we, we, we want to get out of the pain of trials. But, but James wants us to pray for the love and maturity that trials can produce. You know, right now, in our country, in our world, many followers of Jesus are asking, why is there all this pain and all this trouble? Just a, just a thought, just an idea. Did it ever cross your mind that this actually may be a season of life to love God more? I know a lot of us, uh, I was talking with a friend yesterday, and he's an entrepreneur, and he can't stand the fact that, that the pause button feels like it's on right now. And, and you know, when I, I was thinking about that today when I was driving here, and I thought, maybe this is a season that God hit the pause button for us, not to fall away from the faith, but to fall into the faith, to love God more. You see, James sees the difference between the knowledge of faith in our head, and that is important. Please, don't underestimate the knowledge of the faith, but also a loving life of faith because it is the combination of the knowledge of God, including His love, being loved by God and loving Him that changes the way we live and changes the way we love. Even if you're misunderstood in that, then that's going to happen. You're going to be misunderstood in a lot of ways, and people are going to think that you are thinking one way, and even though you're not thinking that way, but God is changing you. And, you know, sometimes we have to have the faith that God will change others. And that love of that we have for God really carries us into verse 13, where he says, Let no one say when... You might want to circle that word in your Bible, when, and write an arrow out and write, not if. <laughs> when, not if. Let no one say when, not if, he is tempted, I am tempted by God, or I am being tempted by God, for or because God cannot be tempted by evil. That's number one. Number two, nor does, God, does he himself tempt anyone. Verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away. Some versions say lured away. Others say dragged away. Others say drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Another version says, you're, 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 you're dragged away from God, you're dragged away to your desires when your own desires entice you. Now, I have to be honest with you, I have a whole other message just on that verse. I'm not going to give it today, but I reserve the right to come back to it. And, and, so, and so basically what he's saying is, this is hard, man. I know this is really hard. He's saying you're tempted because you want it. Like, like, that's the problem. Then, when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Now, this is, this is why I think that trials and temptations are different. God may allow, or God may bring certain trials into our lives. But temptation is not from Him. However, I think we must all be very much aware when we are in trials that temptation lurks closely behind. Let me say that again. When we are in trials, when things are hard, when we are really disappointed, when life is not going the way we want it to, things didn't turn out the way we had expected, it wasn't as we planned, we must understand that when trials, we're in trials, that temptation is right on its tail. 
and know that it's coming. Now that, you may say, well, why do you tell us stuff like this? So you're on the lookout for it. So you're like, something's going wrong in your life. And you just want to, you know, do something or, or say something or, or, or go a certain way. And all of a sudden you catch yourself and you're like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is the temptation that is lurking behind the situation that I'm in. Personally, that's why I think that verse 13 is right here after verse 12. Not because they come in order, but because God is saying to us, when there are trials to endure, will we endure or will we give in and fail? Will we pass the test or will we fail the test? And so it's so important to see that our response to trials will be a test to pass or a temptation to sin. Think of a, of a trial that you are in right now or that you have been in. Was there a temptation attached to it? Was there a temptation to, to question the love of God? Was there a temptation to question or, or abandon the faith? Was there a temptation, or is there right now for you, friend, a temptation to compromise, a, a, temper, a temptation to feel entitled? Let's get more practical. A temptation to... Do something that you otherwise never would do. A temptation maybe to let one glass of wine turn into three or four. A temptation to, to, to start being stingy with God. A temptation of saying, well, God, if this is what I get, I'm not going to serve you which always comes back to the thing we say all of the time, but it always bears repeating. If you don't see Jesus serving you on the cross, you will never have a proper perspective on serving. And you will never, ever be a true servant of Christ. You know, I've said this before. Sometimes people say to me, Pastor Jim, man, don't, don't you get tired and weary of, of serving God all the time. Now, do I get tired from ministry? Sometimes, yes, physically tired, but I don't really think about that till people ask. I'm always like, don't ask me that question. I don't, I don't even want to think about it. You know, most of you know that I have a, a chronic neurological disorder. It's a trial, for sure. And, and the various doctors that I've seen uh, said to me that this thing that I have is very rare, and, and so they've said, let's go over a couple of the side effects of them. And, and, and one of them is uh, increased drug and alcohol use. Now, I used to use drug and alcohol uh, quite a bit prior to my conversion, 30-something years ago. And, and so I will say to them, well, up to this point in time, uh, there has been no temptation for me to increase any drug or alcohol use because I don't use drugs or alcohol. And they're saying, well, how can you be so sure that you're, because almost everybody who has what you have, that's a problem. How can you be so sure? And I always smile and I say, do you really want to know how I can be so sure? And they say, yes. And I share with them the good news. And they're thinking, maybe he is on drugs. <laughs> but that's it. Because when you see Jesus, when you understand the gospel and what he's done for you, you begin to pull back from those things. It is true that the, that the word of God says that sometimes God tests. Just last Sunday, we looked at a test for Abraham. He failed abysmally. This Sunday, we're going to look at a test for a lot. And it also involves a test for Abram, and they're going to have, or Abraham, they're going to have two different reactions. 
Hezekiah was tested. It says God tested Hezekiah. God tested the people of God. But here's the important thing about these tests that trials bring. The tests are to strengthen your faith, not to destroy your faith. That's what they are there for. God is holy. God is pure. God is 100% moral. He does not entice his people to disobey him. We do it themselves. We do it ourselves. Like I often tell the, the young people, you know, especially the, the, the seniors in high school, I'll tell them, listen, the devil is never going to knock on your door and say to you, hey, let's go out tonight and, you know, uh, destroy yourself. He's not going to do that. He's going to knock on the door and say, let's go have one beer, and he's going to let you do the rest. Because those desires, they're, they're in us. You know, do we, do we really do it ourselves? Let me, let me tell you how I think one of the proofs is that we do it ourselves is when, when, when we do something and something bad happens, don't we look for someone else to blame? We sin and then we look for someone else to blame. We just can't bring ourselves to admit it, to come clean with God. But, but until we come clean with God, until we repent, until what we did is a disgusting smell in our nostrils, we haven't really repented. We haven't, we haven't really come clean with God. We haven't given ourselves to him and saying, please, 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 please. I'm giving this to you. I'm not asking you to take it from me. I'm, I'm giving it to you. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to replace my love for you. It's not, I'm not saying it's easy. And if no one else can be found to blame, we blame God. You say, do we really? It's actually in the Bible. Proverbs 19.3, The foolishness of a man twists his way and his heart frets against the Lord. Listen to the English Standard Version. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Now, you say, well, okay, I, did, I sinned, but I'm not, I'm not raging against God. But loved ones, maybe we do when in our behavior we rage. In our behavior, we're actually raging against God because he let this situation a lot of times go on for a long time and then finally he reels it in. More fishing, right? Fishermen with their lures, they, get, they lure their prey in and, and, and you're, you, sometimes with a fish, you gotta let it, you gotta let the line out. You gotta let that fish run until it gets tired or until it's time to reel it in. Sometimes God lets the line out. He lets us go when we think, oh, it's, it's okay. And he talks to us about it over and over and over and over and over and over again. And eventually he yanks the line. And he says, that's it. You're coming in. You're caught. And, and those consequences, though you may blame other people, though you may rage at God in your behavior, Though you may rage at God with your mouth and with your thought life, though you may rage at God actually in words towards God, they're all meant to bring you back, to get you to the place where you're no longer doing that. So James sees our hearts being the source of temptation. And our hearts become part of the temptation like fishermen, and you know all fishermen are liars, Come here, little fishy. Come here, little fishy. Luring the fish to the hook. A.T. Robertson calls it being snared by one's own bait. It's a great illustration. And, and then James, actually, the way he illustrates it is he pictures it as a birth. And many Bible scholars will tell you that he's actually using a sexual illustration here. The order is logical. It's evil desire that gives birth to sin, which produces death. And notice James is calling everyone in the, in the congregations that he's writing to here to personal responsibility. 
It's interesting temptation, a very interesting thing. What's a temptation for one person is a non-event for someone else. But we all have something. It's important that we, we, we realize this with one another, that we all have something. And sometimes these things are, are very, very hard to see. I think, of, I think of a lot of people who grow up with great insecurities. It's very hard for them to see that. It's very hard for them to see how they, how they give in to the temptation. Insecurity, let's just call that the trial, whatever, whatever led to that. It's very hard for them to see how, how that's then tempting them to think certain ways about certain people. You know, somebody walks by you and, and, they, and they don't say hello to you and you're like, oh, they hate me. You know, you don't know. Maybe they have a headache. Maybe they had something in their eye. Maybe they, ha- maybe they had something really heavy on their heart. You don't know. But see, the ability for any kind of temptation to drag us away from the Lord shows us the power of temptation. And it's also interesting that minor temptations can grow huge if left unchecked. And there's an important subtlety here. James teaches us here, here that desire in itself is not sinful until it becomes evil desire, until it conceives, and then until it gives birth. In other words, temptation is not the sin. What we do with it is. I mean, Jesus was tempted. He, he was tempted by the, by the devil for power. He was tempted in, in other different areas by people for power. I mean, he was a famous guy. I'm sure there was plenty of women that were like, hey, Jesus, you know, we love popular guys. But he didn't give into it. Giving birth to temptation is often a byproduct of self-interest. And when we give birth to that, that toxic self-interest, it puts us into this sin cycle, which is very difficult to get out of. Very difficult. And that's why he's telling us from the beginning, listen, the trials, understand this. It's going, the, the, the temptation is coming right behind it. Get ready. Notice he didn't say if it comes. He said when. And the more we feed it, the more we nurture it, the more it grows. And the more it grows, the more it trains us. And the more it trains us, the more it rules us. You say, Pastor Jim, this is scary stuff. You're not kidding. You're not kidding at all. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. This is a clue to what's coming next is important. Every good gift and perfect, every good, every good gift and every perfect gift, not temptation, is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, probably talking about the Creator and the Sovereign of the universe, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. What is he saying? God does not change. Verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. What's the word of truth? I believe that's the gospel. We are, we are born of God, not born of temptation, that we might be the kind, a kind of first fruits of his creatures. After teaching us that God does not tempt us, James teaches us the opposite is true, that God is the giver of good gifts to his children. That includes the new birth. The new birth, the fresh start, is for all who turn to God and put their trust in Jesus. And then Jesus Christ himself is the good and perfect gift because he came down from the Father above. Jesus provides for us and offers to us an alternative path to the one that leads to death. It is to be part of God's first fruits of his creation, of his creatures, sorry. His adopt, part of his adopted family, by grace, we grab it through faith to all who trust in the work of his son Jesus, including his perfect life, death, and resurrection. 
You see, friends, if you're not a follower of Jesus or if you are, we can choose the darkness or the light. We can choose life or death. We can choose evil desires or Jesus. We can choose to trust in ourselves or we can trust in Jesus. That's against what the world's system thinks. The world thinks that we're good. We're all good. People, what do they think about God? I don't know, man. Some people think he's evil. Some people think he's powerless. Some people think he doesn't care. But the pain and suffering in this world is a result of human sin. Now, for some people, you may have to tell them it's largely human sin because they don't have the capacity to understand such things. But Jesus has defeated sin. He has defeated death. In God's great love, he sent Jesus to live that perfect life in your place. And when he was being tortured, Jesus Christ received a crown of thorns. Why? Well, so you could receive a crown of life. Jesus died on the cross so you would never have to. And Jesus rose from the dead so you could too. And he calls you today to trust him and to love him because he loves you. And if you do, you will receive that crown of life. And he will help you remain faithful to the end. And he will help you endure to the end. And you will never die. Well, let's pray.